Welcome to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters. I'm your host, Gavin Reese. Every episode of this podcast will bring in a variety of experts to help writers of all genres incorporate more authentic cops, crime, and criminals in their stories. My guest joining me for today's interrogation is New York Times bestselling author Brad Taylor. Brad grew up in rural Texas and graduated from UT. After accepting a commission in the U.S. Army, Brad served more than 21 years and retired as a Special Forces Lieutenant Colonel. His assignments included eight years in 1st Special Forces Operational Detachment Delta and operations in support of U.S. national interest in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other classified locations. Brad earned a Master's of Science in Defense Analysis from the Naval Postgraduate School with a concentration in irregular warfare. His debut novel, entitled One Rough Man, launched to immediate success in 2011 and introduced readers to Pike Logan. Pike now appears in his 14th novel, Hunter Keller, which releases next week. Despite having sold more than 2 million books worldwide, Brad continues to consult on asymmetric threats for various agencies when he's not busy writing. Good morning, Brad. Welcome back to Writers on the Beat. I'm really grateful for a few minutes of your time today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Now, I just actually started reading Hunter Killer yesterday. I think with the the, the holiday travels, I didn't get to it until uh, until really too late. But it, you kept me up so late last night that I'm almost done with it now. <laughs> That's <what I> like <laughs> yeah. So I'm almost already ready for the next installment. For the unfortunate audience without an advanced copy, what do you want them to know about this Pike Logan adventure? Uh, it actually kind of springs back to the very beginning. I, I, it's one of the, f- actually it is the first book that uh, transitions from the previous book, uh, Daughter of War. I had a a uh, tangential antagonist in there in the form of Wagner, a uh, mm-hmm. private military company in Russia. That's a real thing. They're all over the place. They're in Libya, Syria, Central African Republic. And uh, I was doing research for the next book and I got a feed because uh, I still had feeds lined up. Um, anything that anybody talked about Wagner, I, I got a note on it. Mm-hmm. And they had been, they went down to try to uh, rescue Maduri down in um, Venezuela. And I thought, well, that's odd. Wow. And I started yeah. doing more research on it and I stumbled into Brazil, started looking at Brazil and the absolute clown fest of their uh, presidential <laughs> elections last year. And yeah. kind of started the book. Now, this is such a fantastic story for the for the reader and me, but it, it also serves as an incredible text for an author studying craft and storytelling. There's a lot here to unwrap, uh, I think a lot more than time permits. So I wanted to focus on a few of the topics that I thought would be most helpful to the the audience. And uh, along that research line, I guess moving chronologically through Hunter Keller, uh, one of the first things that, that struck me in this was your use of St. Kitts and their, their pay for passport. Yeah. Uh, I, I ran across that last year doing some research on one of my own books, and I was interested to hear about how that came to your attention and when you realized that needed to be in Hunter Keller. Well, they had uh, uh, the Iranians are using them. Everybody's using them to evade sanctions because if you travel around as an Iranian and if you're sanctioned by the United States government, it's hard to use your passport in an airport. And St. Kitts has it. We actually have it in herself in the United States, believe mm-hmm. it or not. Um, if you give them enough money, if you donate enough money, then you get a passport and become a citizen of St. Kitts. It's, it's, it's become a cottage industry and Russia has used it. Iran's used it. Everybody uses it because it immediately dislocates you from your country of origin. Yeah. And that was one of the things that surprised me most is it really wasn't even all that expensive. I think when, uh, when I was looking into it, like if you bought a, a house for like $400,000 or something, right. like you, you were qualified <laughs> to and become a St. Kitts, Kitts citizen. Like St. Kitts is that uh, um, St. Kitts is one of the few countries where you don't need a visa to go everywhere. It's one of those, mm-hmm. 
like the United States is kind of one of those countries, you know, we can travel all over Europe, but you don't need a visa. Um, if you're from Russia, you need a visa to go anywhere. But mm-hmm. if you're from St. Kitts, you don't. Yeah. And, you know, it's a, a really easy way for folks with a little bit of assets, a little bit of resources, or, you know, your characters and story with those same things to, to navigate around the world and try to be a little bit more covert. In one of the other covert aspects of this book, in, in, in Daughter of War, uh, when you and I talked last year, I absolutely fell in love with Amina. And, you know, we talked then about how she had started out as, as kind of a two-dimensional kind of placeholder character. Uh, in that and blossomed into this persona that's now in kind of the long arc of the series. Would you mind for readers who haven't read Daughter of War kind of explaining Amina's development in that book? Yeah, I, she was, she was initially, she was designed just to get Pike on the the threat vector. There's got to be a way for Pike to run into the threat. And I used her to be the, the um, character that would introduce the threat vector to Pike. Mm -hmm. And then the story was going to go from there. But when I wrote her, I liked her too much. <laughs> <And> so, like, <laughs> I, I mean, initially she was going to exit stage left. I didn't know if mm-hmm. I was going to kill her or if she was just going to walk off or whatever. She wasn't going to be in the book. But uh, I liked her too much. So much so that the, this, the uh, initial title of that book was Shadow Strike. And by the time I was done, it became Daughter of War because of Amina. Yeah. And so you gave us kind of this little Easter egg last year that, you know, Amina was was going to be, you know, a, a long-term character. And I think you've done a really fantastic job of putting her into Hunter Killer in something that's actually, you know, age appropriate for a 13 year old to somehow be in an espionage novel. And I I wondered how, uh, uh, from a craft perspective, how you decided to insert her into the story and and build her into the long-term arc of this while maintaining some elements of realism. Yeah, that's the, actually it's the hardest thing in the world because when you're writing a series, the hardest thing about a series is, it's your own universe, but once you create something in the universe, it exists. So mm-hmm. if I say somebody's got blue eyes, he's got blue eyes forever. Uh, and when I didn't uh, have a mini exit stage left, she's she's in the series. Now I got to figure out what to do with her. And I I give a hundred percent into each novel, not thinking about the next novel. And then when I was done, I was like, okay, Amina's here now. You can't just start the next novel and have all your fans say, what the hell happened to Amina? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I figure out what yeah. to do. In fact, I wrote a short story. Um, called mm-hmm. a novella called Exit Fee, yes. which was basically me exploring that very thing. Okay, how is this relationship going to work? What are they going to do? How is this going to all work out? And it was just me getting thoughts out on the page, which has become a short story, which is out there in the world now. Yeah, and for the one of the central core themes or conflicts in this this book is um, kind of a something be familiar to to your long term fans with you know Pike's dedication and theme of family. And you know, Mina's integration of that and, and some of the, the conflict that you've put there. When you're putting this much stress on your characters, how, how do you know when it's too much, when it's just right, when you have enough conflict and tension to keep driving readers forward without making them just put it down in frustration? I Honestly, it's kind of organic. I don't know. I, I mean, I'm not an expert at that. And I... I am a reader first. And um, so when I reread what I've written, if it's not something I want to read, then it needs to be fixed. And I'll be, I'll be reading the draft and I'll hit a point and say, um, that doesn't work. I don't like that. And so I'll have to go back. And I mean, sometimes I don't even know why it doesn't work. I just know that when I hit that point, I don't like it. So if I don't like it, somebody else is not going to like it. And so I uh, just have to go back to the drawing board and figure out what is it that you don't like. Now there's a lot of themes in there about morality and things like that. Mm-hmm. When I was writing a book, we had uh, 
well, now they've all been pardoned. But back then, and everybody was screaming, <laughs> I should all be free and special operations and they're the best ever. And you know, who cares if they assassinate somebody or cut somebody's head off or whatever. And it aggravated me because that's not the way the American mm -hmm. system functions. It's not what we do. And so there's a lot of themes in there about, you know, what is the morality of combat? What, what makes somebody a good you know, white hat versus a black hat? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's really, uh, I think, something that strikes at the core of our worldview um, and our relationship with government and the, the American culture. And I, I really appreciated the time and effort that you put into that inherent conflict, especially dealing with rules of engagement and morality of, of combat. I ran into a similar problem a few years back when I was working on this project that involved similar issues of whether the op for we could be facing would be classified as suspects or enemies. And the dilemma your characters face in Hunter Killer was very reminiscent of a, a legal debate I got into yeah. with a colleague in the middle of a training class. And I, I really appreciated those real-life elements that you put in here. Um, they, they don't go unnoticed. Yeah, well, they actually, I mean, it's, that's what happens. I mean, there's uh, the minute you're in combat, when you enter combat, you're in a moral dilemma from the minute you step foot into it. I mean, you've been mm -hmm. told your whole life, thou shalt not kill. And then you're mm -hmm. given a rifle and said, go kill that guy there's a moral con there's a conundrum right there mm -hmm. and it's, it's hard to maintain the pace of, well, okay, where's the line drawn here before it was drawn with the 10 commandments. Now it's obviously not. You give me a rifle and tell me go kill that guy. So where is that line drawn? How much of your research is, is done from afar and, and how much of it is, is boots and loafers on the ground these days? Uh, for hunter killer, it's well, it was a little bit of both. Cause I had, I had to read a ton of stuff about Brazil. I don't know anything about Brazil. So I had to mm -hmm. read all kinds of stuff about the elections and what was going on and who was doing what. And, and Russia has what they call their near abroad. They're mad at us because we're in what they call their near abroad. <laughs> yeah, which somehow includes Brazil, right? Well, that's what they were, they're trying to do. So we're yeah. over there, like Montenegro just joined <laughs> NATO. We're getting closer and closer to the border of Russia, which they call their near abroad, and they're mad about it. Mm -hmm. And so they're trying to get into our near abroad, which is why they're down in Venezuela, why they're doing... Uh, mill-to-mill -mill engagements all over Central America. And I thought that, you know, if they could do something in Brazil, if they could capture the Lulu oil fields off there, even if it was covert, they would be in our near abroad and they'd be controlling the methods of the leverage of power in Brazil. And elements of, of, of realism in your stories and the, the amount of, of headlines that, that contribute to these. One of the things that also really caught my attention this week, um, obviously with the, the airstrike at the Baghdad airport, I think I saw your blog post maybe yeah, I put that thing a, out right a, a, yeah, a couple hours. <laughs> like, you know, you, some, somebody, somebody in the, uh, the administration must have a direct line to your Twitter feed. <laughs> I saw that and I was like, Holy moly. <laughs> yeah. Know. Yeah. You know, you, you, you couldn't have, uh, have influenced that, you know, more quickly if you'd actually been in the chain of command. Yeah. Um, they, what's going on in Iraq is much more complex than, uh, everything on the news is sound bites and bumper stickers. Yes, it is. You know, it's us yeah. against Iran or whatever. But the truth of the matter is Iran wants to have a, uh, they want hegemony over the entire Middle East. Mm -hmm. And then one thing it's stopping is Iraq is, is right smack dab in the middle between Iran and Syria, which leads down to Lebanon. And they want a land bridge through Iraq. They want to own Iraq. And they pretty much do own Iraq in the parliament, which is why the people are protesting. Yeah. And the intricacies there are that uh, they want us out of Iraq. So if they can goad us into doing overreactions, then they can get the parliament to say, vote us out. And then and it's going to be a tense couple of days now, because I put that thing mm -hmm. out about how we should be uh, leveraging against Iran, not against the proxy forces Iran's using against us. Right. And blew up so many. Actually go solve the problem itself instead of the symptoms. Yeah. Right. Well, that's one of the things that um, 
you know, I really appreciate that the power of fiction has, right? Especially when, if you're writing about true life events or true human character, the, the power of fiction to influence the, the public and, and its readers is really fantastic and I think highly underrated. So when you put all the, the time and effort into your research and the authenticity that just drips from these books, um, I, I think you as an author have a, a really tremendous and vicarious impact on your readership on influencing the way they see the world. I, I do. And sometimes that's a bad influence. I mean, for yes. like the Lulu oil fields in Brazil and all that, that's, that's all real. Mm-hmm. Um, and what Russia is trying to do down there is real. But uh, the very fact that I created the task force, that it's, a, it's an extra legal killing machine, basically, mm-hmm. the Constitution, all that. And a lot of the stuff that I did in the military was classified, but it was classified for a reason. There was, mm-hmm. We didn't talk about it because it, it would harm you know, methods and actions we were trying to take. But people read fiction and now assume that the task force is real. There must be a real task force <laughs> out there. Yes, there's not. Yeah. We don't have that. Yeah, you know, that's uh, something that has always struck me as such a, a huge conundrum. Uh, Henry Kissinger um, was alleged to have said years ago that the illegal can be done immediately and the unconstitutional takes a bit longer. And <laughs> I think that there, especially in espionage and, and thriller fiction, right, there's this um, this huge belief in, among the public and certainly among authors that you know, these kind of things may be possible and, and may exist. And, and it's an easy thing for us to believe, I think, because we assume people in power with unlimited authority are, are going to be doing things like this. And, yeah. And, and I had, uh, when I wrote uh, One Rough Man at the very beginning, I created the task force, which was kind of a fantasy of ours. It wasn't even, it was just like, mm-hmm. boy, wouldn't it be nice if we had something? Yeah. Like what if? Sure. It's impossible to actually get anything done. And the, um, then uh, Seymour Hersh came out with this big thing about how Obama or um, Bush had this assassination team running around the world whacking everybody, not talking to ambassadors and everything else. I'm like, he thinks the task force is real. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, if only it was that easy, come on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, and that's, uh, that's, I, I think the thing that, that is fun to play with as, as a writer is blurring that line between reality and fiction. And it, if you can do it effectively and make it believable like this, it, I think that's really when you know you. Yeah, the got. hardest part is trying to is exactly what you just said is to make it believable because the uh, you know if I was going to say okay Pike pulled out a lightsaber and then a photon cannon came out, <laughs> not happen. Yeah. So you've got to sit there and really think through okay if this was going to happen how would it really happen? You can't magic an airplane somewhere. You can't the customs exist. Facial recognition exists. You can't mm-hmm. just go in and rent a car and then run somebody over and leave again. So the hardest part is, okay, how would we really do this? Yeah, and on the, the facial recognition front, that's one of the things that that in my writing and, and, and research, I've, I've tried to, uh, I guess, dial back a little bit from the reality, right? I, I think the public perception is that with facial recognition, like the camera has to get this really great image of you in a certain angle looking at it in order to be effective. And the reality, obviously, is very different from that. Yeah, um, it used to be. Yeah, I mean, artificial intelligence needs two things. Mm-hmm. It needs computing power, which we have in spades, mm-hmm. and it needs data. That's what yeah. it needs. It needs a bazillion photos. And if you only have one photo, yeah, you're going to be looking right at the camera. You've got mm-hmm. 102 photos of the same guy. You can look at the back of his head, and you're going to figure out who it is. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's really amazing. And, you know, so I, I kind of feel like I have to walk this a little bit of a tightrope from an OPSEC perspective, right, that, you know, and not – trying to divulge anything that's going to harm ongoing investigations of the guys still, you know, downrange. 
but at the same time providing a story that's believable and realistic for the readers who oftentimes are a little bit savvier than the general public, I think. And, you know, where I find most of my ideas, believe it or not, are criminals. <laughs> yes. So you see some kind of crime that happened. They exploited some kind of uh, vulnerability. Well, I have the Alexa mm-hmm. hack and um, Hunter Killer. Yes. Alexa is easy to hack. And um, I, there were some criminals that hacked it. Believe it or not, they didn't do it the way I did it in the book. There's several ways you can do mm-hmm. it. But they did it. Alexa yeah. can hear frequencies that um, the human ear cannot hear. Right. And so if you dial up the frequency so the human ear can't hear it, and what you're saying is, wake up, Alexa, it'll wake up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You won't yeah. even know. And criminals were doing that to gather credit card information, that kind of stuff. And so uh, every time the criminals come up with something, I'm like, I could use that offensively. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's actually after uh, you you and I talked about that last year, I have, uh, we just bought a, a house, um, I guess a month before you and I spoke. And we, uh, as part of the, the package deal with our, this home purchase, we got a uh, an Alexa and an Echo that, you know, the was a compliment to the builder, right? They are still in the packaging because after you and I talked, I'm like, there's absolutely no way I'm going to turn these things yeah, on. <laughs> I mean, I was in a hotel in Taiwan doing research for the next book mm-hmm. and it had an Alexa in there. And so we're just in there talking in the hotel and all of a sudden the thing lights up and says, the weather today is this. And I'm like, I don't know what I said, but I just woke that thing up, unplugged mm-hmm. it. Yeah, it's it's really disconcerting when I can have a conversation with someone with no no devices actually turned on go to my computer and up pops in my Google window, a search for the thing I was just talking about. It's terrible. Yeah, that concerns me too. I'm like, is Siri spying on me right now? (laughs) Yeah, I think Google is probably the most effective uh, intelligence agent in the U.S. right now. If you can have Google, you can own everything. Well, you know, the Google, the thing about Google is so that the president of Google is, uh, he's actually a a Russian immigrant. He owns Mm -hmm. all your data on the computer. Yes. His wife owns 23andMe, so she's got all your DNA. <laughs> I've got to stop having these interviews. <laughs> um, yeah, okay. That's uh, another element of terror. I appreciate that, Brad. Thanks for uh, for ruining what my Friday morning. Yeah. The world. Oh, my God, yeah. And my natural, and, you know, growing up in the Cold War, my natural and inherent distrust of all things Russian. Um, yeah. yeah. Oh, is your... Putting these stories together and preparing, I mean, I, I expect, you know, probably next year's book is probably already well underway. How, at this point, after 14 stories, do you keep Pike Logan and his exploits fresh and current and, and not feel like a repeat for your long-term readers? Uh, it's, in, in one sense, it's easy, but in the other sense, it's incredibly hard. So in a sense, it's easy is because the world keeps turning. There's stories that come out every day. I'm, mm-hmm. The next book's about Taiwan. There's all kinds of machinations in Hong Kong and Taiwan already going on with the Chinese. So mm-hmm. it's kind of easy. You start doing the research on the uh, uh, real world events, and you're like, nobody would even believe this if I put it in a book. But wow, that works out perfectly. I'm going to put that in a book. Yeah. And um, uh, for instance, I, we have a Roomba vacuum in here. And the Roomba vacuum, the new one, has a uh, internet connection where it maps your house. Well, then the, your floor plan <laughs> The Roomba. So I'm going to use that in the book somehow. I don't know, but Pike's going to have to figure out how to do a floor plan somewhere, and he's going to hack the Roomba site and figure out what the floor plan is based on this remote vacuum that's mm-hmm. running around the room. No, but uh, the hard sense is you don't mm-hmm. want to do the same thing every time, and so mm-hmm. there's it's really hard to try to to generate. That's why I use Alexa. That's why I used uh, the uh, rental bikes and those kind of things because you don't want to do the same thing every single time. Mm-hmm. But some things are just universal. So I had one guy ask me one time, you know, why are you always tracking cell phones? Well, because that's how, that's what happens. Yeah, that's, Everybody has yeah. a cell phone. 
It's yeah. almost like asking, you know, uh, when you get a gunfight, why do you always use a gun? Yeah. Well, because that's what happens. <laughs> I mean, everybody's yeah. got a smartphone and that thing is a huge vulnerability. That's what we do. So, but I do try to mix it up and it is hard not to do the same thing. And in fact, I uh, was just writing a scene. I was like, ah, you did that two books ago. You got to figure something else out, which is hard to do. Also from last year, you and I talked about um, who you would want to investigate your hypothetical murder. And now that you know, we're starting season two of, of Writers on the Beat, um, I'm coming through with a, a new final question for all the, the authors that come on. Hypothetically, Brad, <laughs> let's say that you know, you're maybe trapped on a ferry in a foreign country that's being, <laughs> you know, taken, uh, 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 you've been taken hostage by a group of terrorists, and you get out a, uh, let's say, a beacon signal to, uh, to your team, to maybe the task force to come and rescue you, but Pike's unavailable and you only get two task force members, who do you want coming to your rescue? Hmm. Well, so I'm on the boat, but the people that are, that are in the book are not on the boat. Yep. Yep. Okay. That's who I would want. <laughs> 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 Knuckles and bread. Fantastic. Well, we, we, we know who, uh, who to trust then. I, I really appreciate you coming and making time for the, for the show and sharing some expertise with us, Brad. This is an absolutely fantastic story, and I'm, I'm really excited to see all the, all the success when it publishes next week. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. It's good to be back. Thanks to my guest, New York Times bestseller Brad Taylor, for joining me today. You've been listening to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters, a copyrighted broadcast of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Gavin Reese. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. Be safe out there.